Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, the f*** did he know? It's a Tuesday edition of PFTPM. There is no PFT Live this week or the next two weeks, but PFTPM, easy to accomplish, and it's also forcing me to keep my office reasonably clean. Coming up in a few minutes, a conversation I taped earlier today with Rodney Harrison, former Charger, former Patriot, member of the Patriots Hall of Fame, member of NBC's Football Night in America. I wanted to talk to him about Cam Newton, but as you will see, We immediately got into the topic of how football will be played in a pandemic. Those comments are worth listening to, and I'll have some more thoughts on the current intersection between the virus and the NFL after the Rodney interview. For now, Colin Kaepernick's story isn't going away as much as the NFL would like it to do so. There was a report from Matt Barrows of The Athletic on Monday taking season with the 49ers. Now, part of the false narratives that have been circulating for the last three and a half years, focus on 2016, focus on Kaepernick's performance that year. There's a screenshot from ESPN that gets used by the people who are anti-Kaepernick to suggest he wasn't good in 2016. People will say he was benched for Blaine Gabbert in 2016. That is just flat out false. As false narratives go, it's one of the most false. What happened was after the 2015 season, Colin Kaepernick had three different surgeries and he was recovering from those surgeries throughout the off season. And he wasn't ready to be the starter. He wasn't even in uniform for the first couple of preseason games. One of the reasons people didn't notice he was sitting for the national anthem is because he wasn't dressed. He didn't play. He wasn't even in position to play in the first couple of preseason games. It wasn't until he was in uniform and people saw his name across the back of the jersey, his number seven sitting on the bench, that it even became an issue in late August of 2016. So he didn't lose the job to Blaine Gabbert. Blaine Gabbert was healthy. And then when the 49ers benched Blaine Gabbert for a finally healthy Colin Kaepernick, Jeremy Curley, who ended up being the leading receiver on the team that year, said that Kaepernick energized the offense. And he ultimately threw 16 touchdown passes against four interceptions. And I know that the 49ers only had one win while Kaepernick started that year. But look, the same people who are going to shout and scream that quarterback wins don't count when a team wins a lot of games, so we think the quarterback is better than his numbers would indicate, those same people need to acknowledge that The team doesn't win games with the quarterback on the field. That shouldn't be an indictment of his overall performance either. They had a lot of injuries that year. Chip Kelly was the wrong choice for head coach. They were going through a lot of transition and dysfunction. Remember, it was the third of three straight years that saw the coach get fired at the end of the season. Jim Harbaugh fired or mutual parting after the 2014 season. Jim Harbaugh has since said that baloney. He was fired. Jim Tom Sula, one and done, fired after 2015. Chip Kelly, one and done, fired after 2016. So the idea that Kaepernick stunk in 2016 isn't supported by the evidence. Now, at times, at times, in 2015 and 2016, after he signed that big contract, he wasn't as good as he had been early in his career. But when a guy goes from being a franchise quarterback A guy that Ron Jaworski once said on ESPN and created like a week 
of content as they churned and churned it. Kaepernick could be one of the best quarterbacks ever when he goes from that to middle of a pack mediocre at best, if we accept that premise, it doesn't mean that the end result is he's out of the league altogether. Jameis Winston isn't out of the league. He's the backup in New Orleans. Marcus Mariota isn't out of the league. He's the backup with the Raiders. There would have been, should have been, could have been an opportunity to be a backup somewhere for Colin Kaepernick if he wasn't blackballed by the NFL. And that's really the broader point. And we can debate all we want the question of whether or not the NFL collectively shunned Colin Kaepernick. The evidence suggests that it did. And the fact that the NFL eventually paid out a sum reportedly between five and $10 million to sell his collusion claim suggests that the NFL, which has a pretty long track record of winning in court and also a pretty long track record of not giving in unless there's a reason to give in, there was a reason to give in. And remember, they didn't buy out Colin Kaepernick's employment rights when they settled that grievance in early 2019. He could still file another collusion grievance against the NFL if he wanted to. I don't know that he wants to. I do know that he wants to play, though. And I continue to be astounded by his current posture as we addressed over the weekend. Remember when the NFL initially said via NFL media, that there are multiple teams interested in Colin Kaepernick. We reported to PFT, well, none of them have reached out to Kaepernick or his agents. Well, the volley then from the NFL via NFL media was the teams are talking to friends and associates of Colin Kaepernick. Well, Kaepernick's camp has, first of all, no idea who these friends and associates are. And the way it was couched by NFL media was something like this, that they're going to do their homework without talking to Kaepernick or his agents until they get to the point where they're reasonably comfortable that they can sign Kaepernick to a contract. At that point, they'll talk to the agent, which makes no sense because, and I know this is high level negotiation strategy, but one of the ways you get comfortable with your ability to sign a player to a contract is to talk to his agent. So none of it makes any sense. Now, the best argument, I think, in support of whatever it is the NFL is doing, and it's not an argument that makes it right. It's an argument that helps us understand where they're coming from. I really do think there's kind of a loose effort here to run out the clock, to feign interest in Colin Kaepernick until the attention of the media and the fans moves on to something else. Maybe whether or not we're even going to have football at all this year. If we can just, if we, and it's not exactly good news for the NFL. Hey, if we can just delay this story until the point where all anyone is talking about is whether we're going to be able to play games this year, we win. Well, you don't, but that may be what they're doing. Because as we'll discuss in a few minutes, I feel like we are getting closer and closer to the point where some tough conversations need to be had about whether or not football is even possible, given where the pandemic currently is. On that same note of running out the clock, I give you the example of what Washington coach Ron Rivera had to say on the score in Chicago yesterday afternoon, addressing for the first time the team name. He's been available to reporters multiple occasions. No one has ever asked him that question. In a radio interview setting, he was finally asked that question by Danny Parkins of the score. 
And Ron Rivera's first reaction, first response was, that's a discussion for another time. And the hosts were confused. They're like, you mean not on an afternoon radio show in Chicago? Or you mean not like now? Or like, this is the perfect time to have a conversation. We're in the midst of a national awakening on the extent to which racism has been woven into the fabric of the United States of America since its founding. And it's not just racism against one class of minority, it's racism generally. And to the extent that Christopher Columbus statues are coming down and the city of Columbus is thinking about changing its name, that directly affects and implicates and involves the question of racism that was committed against Native Americans. So if now isn't the time, when is the time? Really, when is the time? And it did remind me a little bit, and I don't want to go apples to apples here. They are two very distinct problems. But whenever there's a mass shooting and there's a push to do something to alter the gun laws in a way that would tend to minimize the extent to which these mass shootings happen, not round up everyone's guns, but just don't sell specific types of guns or don't sell specific types of equipment that make it easier to kill a lot of people in a short time frame. One of the knee-jerk reactions is now isn't the time to have that conversation. Well, it is then, and it is now as it relates to the Washington name. Look, I know that there have been efforts to try to get Ron Rivera's attention. I know that there have been people from outside of the organization trying to talk sense into him about this dictionary defined slur that is the name of the team. And the knee jerk reaction by the team is to point to the 2016 poll from the Washington Post that found 90% of self-identifying Native Americans aren't offended by the term 9% are. That is a flawed poll. You can do the research on it. One of the big criticisms of that poll is that there's no proof that the self-identifying Native American truly is Native American. And it's one thing for someone to say, hey, I'm part Native American. It's another thing for a person to be involved in a tribe, to be heavily involved in tribal activities, and to see that Native American heritage as a key part of his or her identity. And there was a study done earlier this year that showed that the more closely someone actually practiced and participated in the Native American rituals and tribal activities, the more likely they are to be offended by the term. So at least Ron Rivera didn't go 2016 Washington Post poll, but it's not encouraging that his reaction was, if not now, when? And the goal seems to be to run out the clock and get us to a point where we're focused on something else that is taking up our attention, that is allowing issues like Colin Kaepernick's lingering unemployment and the lingering name of the Washington franchise to just exist in plain sight, but no one will be bothering anyone about those issues. And again, it's entirely possible because of the things that are happening with the pandemic. On that note, I want to play the interview that we did earlier today with Rodney Harrison. We start with some pandemic talk we continue with some Cam Newton talk, and then we wrap it up with more thoughts on how football and the coronavirus are going to coexist in 2020. Here's my conversation with Patriots Hall of Famer Rodney Harris. 
For most of the last decade, I have spent every Sunday of the football season sitting elbow to elbow with Rodney Harrison. Fortunately, he has only struck me, (laughs) I don't know, a handful of times. Really, I mean, really, you've only really got me a couple of times where I was like, man, I can only imagine how it felt when Rodney Harrison brought the full force of his ability on a football field. But Rodney, it's been a strange offseason. I don't know what this season's going to look like, but I have a feeling however it plays out, we're not going to be sitting elbow to elbow for a while. And I'm going to miss that as much as anything. Yeah, that's one of the toughest parts, Mike, um, with with everything that's going on and not being able to travel and be in studio with you guys. Heck, I'm sitting back last night talking to my wife, just sitting there thinking, like, how the heck are we going to even play football? If you think about the NFL and they say that the best interest of the players is to be safe and you're doing everything to protect the players, I just don't know how you put the players back on the football field with this virus and not having a vaccine for it. Yeah, Rodney, one of the things that was jarring to me when the protocols came out a few weeks ago that the league was putting together for all of the things they need to do in the facility and in the locker room and on the sideline, keeping everyone separate. Well, at some point, you're going to cross that thick white line and you're onto the field. It's going to be 22 guys in a scrum. I can't reconcile that. And I think players are starting to realize as we get closer and closer to the start of training camp on July 28th, it's not going to be the easiest thing to do if you're obsessed with keeping everyone apart until it's time to practice or play. But then when you practice or play, you can't keep them apart. Well, everything the CDC has said talked about six feet away, making sure you wear your mask and making sure that you stay inside the house. Guess what? Football, you have to you have to breathe on people. You have to tackle people. You spit on people. Um, Guys have cuts. Guys cough out there. You can't tell me if I have two or three kids at home or an elderly parent that lives with me that I'm going to be comfortable going out there practicing entire week, not knowing what the young guys, not knowing what the old guys are going to do after practice, going to restaurants and things like that. I'm not going to be coming. I'm not going to feel comfortable coming home um, to my family when I have kids and things like that. It's just I don't know how we're going to have a season. Bottom line, Mike, I just I don't know how they're going to do it. And Rodney, as you say that, you know, I'm reminded there's been a sense for the past few months that when it comes down to it, football players won't worry about that. On the list of things that they need to be concerned about on the football field, possibly catching the coronavirus isn't even in the top 10. You've got far more immediate risks that you take. But I'm starting to get the sense that players are are feeling the way that you just explained it, that they're not just football robots that just have to play, have to play, have to play football and throw everything else aside. I think a lot of players are taking a more responsible view of this, that even if it doesn't affect me, even if it doesn't sicken me, even if it doesn't kill me, this act of being on the football field is potentially contributing to the spread of a virus that endangers vulnerable people, whether they're in your family, whether they're not in your family. And I sense a lot of players are starting to at least pause and, and look at the broader picture of whether or not this can, can make sense until we do get to the point that we get it under control. Well, and the big thing that, you know, no one's really talking about is, you know, a lot of these players, the ones that need the money, that actually need the check, a lot of those guys, they're going to want to play. If I needed the money, I'm like, hey, put me on a football field. I don't care what I have to do in order to get that check. But the, the game has changed. These, these guys are getting paid so much money. They don't have to sit they don't have to go on a football field because they're making tens and tens of millions of dollars and and for me mike if i was one of those players even if i'm making a lot of money i would not want to go out there man it's just it's just so many unknowns and 
And think about the anxiety levels. It's so much to worry about trying to stop Patrick Mahomes. How do you fend the tight end? How do you stop Tyreek Hill? But you can't even focus on those things because you're focused on your health. You're looking around a locker room. You walk in a locker room, you're very cautious. If a guy coughs, you're looking at him strange. So already your attention has been taken away on the things that you need to focus on. And I just don't know how you comfortably, you know, like Tom Brady, he's out there practicing. He says the only thing you fear is fear itself. But yeah, you could say that, Tom, because you're probably the healthiest guy in the National Football League. But for most players, they don't have the type of strict diet, the type of strict regimen that he has. So to me, it's going to be wide open season. You're going to see everyone catching this virus. And Rodney, you raised an excellent point that I hadn't previously considered. We hear all the time about distractions in the locker room, things that take you away from your focus, things that keep you from doing your job as Bill Belichick wants his players to do. This is the ultimate distraction. This is the ultimate disruption to the routine of a football team. And, and even beyond the mechanical disruption, keeping apart, wearing masks, having the locker room spread out, as you said, and I think you nailed it, you're going to be worried about it. You're going to be thinking about it. You're going to be carrying that burden around when you otherwise would be fully focused on your craft. And I think it's going to keep it, uh, it's going to make it more difficult for guys to be fully focused on their craft because part of their brain is constantly going to be thinking about, am I going to get it? If I get it, who in my family is going to get it? How long will I have it until I know I have it? What's it going to do to me? What's it going to do to others? How do I avoid it? All that stuff spinning around is just chewing up space that otherwise would be focused on being the best football player you can be. And, and think about this, Mike. Think about the coaches in our league. Yeah, we have a lot of young head coaches, but we still have a lot of older coaches in their, in their you know, 50s, in their 60s, trying to stay healthy. So my concern is not just for the players who are young and strong and 20-something years old, but I'm looking at those coaches that are in their 50s, in their 60s. You know, and it's just, it's, it'll be devastating to all. You cannot tell me, and I have a high school junior. I have my son is a junior in high school, and I'm taking him back and forth to workouts, and I see all the social distances. Well, eventually, that's got to go away. What's changed in, within the last three and a half, four months since we've seen this pandemic? What's changed, Mike? We don't have a vaccine. All, all we're basically seeing out here in Atlanta, Georgia, is people saying, screw it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to go to bars. I'm going to play. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to go to the malls. I'm going to the store, the grocery store. I'm going to just live my life as normal. And you see the numbers across the nation just continuously going up, Mike. And Rodney, I didn't expect there to be a vaccine anytime this year. But what I did expect by August or September, reliable testing, quick testing, basically a little room that you go into before you ever get into the team facility where you get your mouth swabbed or you get your finger pricked and you know within five or 10 minutes whether or not you're positive and you get tested before you ever go in. Maybe you get tested on the way out in the event that you've developed from negative to positive while you've been at work for 12 hours. And they're constantly monitoring and constantly testing and constantly aware of who's negative and who's positive and who's positive gets quarantined. But I feel like we're not going to be there. I thought we were going to be there. But if you don't have the ability to test guys every single day, if you don't have that peace of mind that everybody who was in that locker room, everybody who's in that facility has tested negative before they got through the door, it contributes to what you were saying earlier. You're just going to be worried about it. And then eventually you got to go out on the practice field. Eventually you got to go out and do a game situation. And you don't know a damn thing about what other teams are doing to ensure that their guys are negative as well. And 
uh, like anything else, once a bug gets into the locker room, it's a Petri dish. It's going to spread like wildfire. And I don't have the confidence that I thought I'd have at this point that, that they're going to have that under control. Yeah, and competitively, it's it's an unfair advantage. I mean, if Atlanta's playing against Tampa Bay and Matt Ryan comes down with coronavirus, then guess what? The Falcons probably won't have a chance of even beating the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I just don't know with everything that's going on, uncertainty, um, the players, the paranoia, the anxiety, the risk. You're not if you're in the National Football League, if you're college, even if you're high school or grade school, you're not doing what's in the best interest of these young men, putting them back out on a on a football field. And we don't know what's going to happen to them. And before it was just African-Americans and older people um, getting it. Now we're seeing young people get it. I mean, young people all across the country get this virus. And the thing is, Rodney, at the lower levels of football, the money isn't there to justify even trying the higher we go on the ladder, college and pro, especially at the NFL level, the money from the TV contracts is so significant that I feel like they're determined to find a way to make it happen. And if it means half the team is quarantined for three weeks and we got to find replacements, so be it. Remember, in 1987, hey, they had no qualms about going out and getting 28 teams of replacement players when the players went on strike. And I think that's part of what the owners will be willing to do, which I think introduces a whole new set of factors when you're considering that all of a sudden your $35 million a year quarterback is being protected by a guy that they just scraped off of a couch who hasn't played in three years because they're down that far on the list of available free agents. But I feel like that's what they're going to do, that there's always going to be a guy out there who will say, yes, I'll play, sign me up. And you're going to have a huge difference potentially between the best players and the worst players who are on the field at a given time, that introduces a different level of risk. Absolutely. I almost was just sitting here thinking as you were talking, maybe what you do is instead of having a 16-week season or a 17-week season, maybe shorten it. Maybe shorten the season to 10 or 11 games. So therefore, you alleviate a lot of the risk. I mean, it's still going to be risk out there in 10 games but not 16 games, you know, and, and maybe that's a remedy, but I, I still don't think that's going to even work because we don't have a vaccine. These guys are still coming to close um, proximity with one another. They're still tackling each other. And think about it, too. If I'm a DB and I'm known to kind of cover, if I see a running back coming up the middle of the field, I'm not going to want to hit him. I'm not going to want to touch him because I'm afraid that with all that sweat and blood coming off of him, I'm not going to hit this guy. I'm just going to let him go. So it just raises so many questions, Mike. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And one of the biggest problems, as you mentioned, people just act like they don't care, like it's not a thing. And it's by all appearances worse now than it was when we shut the whole country down in March. But the attitude is, so be it. I'm going to live my life. And meanwhile, the numbers keep going up and up. And some of these players are going to have to go into cities and states where the numbers are skyrocketing. And I think we are. I thought there would be very few players who tap out who say, I'm just not doing it this year. I think it's going to be more than I originally believed. And I won't be surprised if if plenty of guys ultimately say, especially the guys who have made a lot of money, don't need that extra money, and are willing to forego a season of potentially significant money to conscientiously decide, I'm not doing it this year. I'll be back in 2021. I think it's going to be a bigger number than I ever would have imagined. I think so, too, because like I said before, the game has changed. These players are making so much money, and now they're at a point where they can come out, they can speak out. See, it's like when I when I came in the league, when I was, say, if I was a safety and I was making a million or two million bucks, these guys are making 10, 12, 14 million bucks. 
a year. So it's not like they have to play. You know what I mean? They have so much money in the bank. They have so much um, revenue and, and finance. And, you know, a lot of these guys have done well with their money. They don't have to be, feel like they're forced to come back on the football field. Well, Rodney, I, I thought of you on Sunday night when I saw that Cam Newton had signed with the Patriots. It's a similar approach to what happened with you. You establish your career as a star player with one team. That team decides to move on. And in comes Bill Belichick, recognizing that there's still a ton of ability, a ton of talent, and plenty of ways that a great player can help a team stay great. Uh, what, what was your reaction? Oh, I loved it. I, I, I loved it. I loved it, Mike, because on May 28th, I talked to, I did an interview with Rich Eisen and he asked me the same question about um, Cam Newton. I said, I, th I was very disappointed in the Patriots for not even pursuing Cam Newton. How could you not pursue a guy that has played, been the MVP, played in the Super Bowl, a guy that's motivated? This is a Bill Belichick type guy. And he goes get guys that are disgruntled, guys that are motivated, guys that really, um, you know, felt like they've been treated wrong by the previous organization. You know, Cam Newton is a perfect, and then Cam comes in, he can he can um, challenge the young guy, Jared Stenham. He can, you know, he can teach him a few things. But also think about this, Josh McDaniels, outside of Tim Tebow, he has not had a guy like Tim, um, Cam Newton. Cam is big. He puts a lot of pressure on the defense. Now, Lamar Jackson just won the MVP as a scrambling quarterback. Cam Newton brings that threat at 6'5", 255 pounds. I mean, it's a big dude. And think about it. If I'm Stephon Gilmore, if I'm one of the McCourty brothers, I had a glimmer, just a glimmer of hope with Jared Stenham. Now I know we can win a Super Bowl. Now I know we can get back in the AFC Championship because I think Josh McDaniels, he's going to adjust a lot of different things for Cam. And the key is whether or not Cam Newton's healthy, but let's assume for these purposes that he is. I think where Cam makes a difference for that New England offense. And it's one of the reasons I think that we've seen mobile quarterbacks have success against the New England defense. You've got the play that gets called, and if the defense matches it well enough, the play that gets called isn't going anywhere. Well, when you have a guy with Cam skill sets, he can make up something on the fly, and maybe those defensive players aren't, aren't good enough to keep up with whatever Cam tries to do if the walls close in and he's got to improvise. And that's what we've seen him do. That's what we've seen some of today's great quarterbacks do. And there's a lot of quarterbacks out there that can't do that. That if, if it doesn't work, if, if the defense guessed right and the play doesn't work, it's over. Cam can extend that and make things happen. And that's an element that really the Patriots haven't had with Tom Brady. He, he does a great job running the play that's called but he's never been a guy who can make chicken salad in one of those situations right. where everything falls apart. He's just got to, he's just, he's got to throw it away or he's got to just take the sack and move on to the next play. Cam can, can make something happen. That makes the offense even more dangerous. You know, Cam is at his very best. We saw in Carolina, Mike, when they were able to establish the run and that's what the Patriots like to do as much as they try to undress everything and try to um, hide it as though they're a passing team. The, the one thing that Belichick always talks about is establishing the run. We have to control the line of scrimmage. If they're able to run the football, use play action pass, get Cam into the quick passing game to avoid hits, Belichick's going to emphasize, Cam, we need you to slide. We need you to get down. We don't need your tough guy. We already know that you're a tough guy. Slide, get down. We need to see you for the next play. I think those, all those things kind of come into play. Look at Josh McDaniels. I mean, he should be happy. He should be the happiest man because now he has a talent 
that he's never had before. And he gets a guy like Cam is hungry. And let me tell you this, Mike, when you've played nine years in one particular organization and someone gives you an opportunity, Coach Belichick gave him an opportunity just like he gave me an opportunity. You don't forget that. You don't forget that. Cam's made over $100 million in his career. The money will come later. He's not worried about that. He wants an opportunity to go out there and play. And I'll tell you this, he's fighting for his career, Cam is, and he understands that. If you can't beat Jared Stenham out, then Cam Newton is going to be a career backup. If you cannot beat Jared Stenham out for the starting job of New England Patriots quarterback, you're going to be a career backup. So Cam is not only playing for a contract, he's playing for his career. I sense some of that same passion that you would have had back when you joined the Patriots after the Chargers cut you. Bill Belichick gave you that chance. You flourished in that system. But there's a huge difference between Rodney Harrison and Cam Newton. Cam Newton's always been the face of the team. Cam Newton's been that giant personality. What advice would you have for him walking into a locker room where it's clear that they don't want anyone to be the face of the team. They don't want anyone to have the personality that sucks all the oxygen out of the room, that you're just one of the guys and the messages do your job. Well, I think all of us, all the guys that have come in, I think when you go to the Patriots, you almost it's almost like a rehab. You come in, you learn, te- you learn teamwork, you learn discipline, you learn unselfishness. And I think we all had to learn that to a certain degree, whether it's me, Randy Moss, Corey, Dillon, all the guys that he, that he brought in, Um, Larry Centers, all the great players that he brought in. And this is the same thing with Cam Newton. I think Cam Newton has so much respect for Coach Belichick. First of all, if he didn't have respect for him, he would have never signed up. But he has so much respect for Coach Belichick. And he understands that, hey, I just want to fit in. Now he has positive structure. He knows he's going to have a good defense. He's got excellent coaching. He's got a great offensive coordinator. He's got all the pieces around him. And he's got a coach that's going to be committed to running the football, committed to making sure that he's protected. They got some weapons, some, a few weapons around him. But I, I do, but, but, but Mike, at the end of the day, I do believe that they're going to try to establish the run game, do the quick passing game, take some shots down the field, and rely on that defense and keep Cam from getting get hit a lot. You mentioned Randy Moss, and that's one of the ultimate gambles Coach Belichick made. By 2007, a lot of people thought Moss was washed up. He had two mediocre seasons in Oakland after he was traded by the Vikings. When he came into the locker room, was he already all in? Just the fact that Bill Belichick showed faith in him, that he respects Bill Belichick, or, or was there a, a requirement, a necessity by the veteran leadership to make sure Randy Moss didn't do some of the things that maybe he did earlier in his career that, that got him in trouble? You know, a guy that has a bad reputation, if he walks in the locker room, I think it's human nature to kind of just assume that he's going to be like that. But Randy, was a, he was a fantastic teammate. He worked his butt off. You always saw him in the training room. You always saw him in the weight room. You always saw him just doing positive things, talking to people. Randy was not a distraction. And when he was on the practice field, he worked his butt off. I mean, he was a perfect teammate. So anything that he had done in his previous time, whether it was Oakland or or wherever he's been, Minnesota, that was all he raced because he was like the perfect teammate. Now, let's assume that, and I don't want to assume, I'm not rooting for this to happen, but let's explore the possibility that Cam either isn't healthy or he can't beat out Jared Stidham, and it just doesn't work, and maybe before the start of the season, he gets released. What does this experience do to undermine Jared Stidham if he ends up being the week one starter? That's 
in my mind, that's the risk they're taking here, that if it doesn't work, they've set back the development of the guy who's going to end up taking over as the successor to Tom Brady. No, nah, I, I just I don't I don't see it that way. I see it as, you know, when you're when you're faced with adversity and competition, let's see what Jared Stenham has in him. See if he's able to step up. See if he can handle the pressure because ultimately it's going to be a lot more pressure playing for the New England Patriots and being the starting quarterback than just playing against Cam Newton and competing against him. So if, if I'm Jared Stenham, I'm looking at as an opportunity to compete against Cam, but not only just compete against Cam, to go out here and show my teammates what I'm truly capable of doing. And I think this is an opportunity for him to learn, for him to sit back and, and, and understand that, hey, there's always going to be guys that they bring in. You know, you're never just going to be the starting quarterback. They're going to always rotate guys in because they're always looking for bigger, better, and, and cheaper. And that's an excellent point. You know, they always drafted quarterbacks when Tom Brady was there. The Jimmy Garoppolo draft pick, I think, lit a fire under Tom Brady that carried them to three more Super Bowl wins. And maybe this does push Jarrett Stidham to a level he otherwise wouldn't have been at. Maybe it is the proverbial good problem to have that both guys are playing at a high level and they have a hard time picking between the two of them. Then they at least know they've got two great quarterbacks that they can move forward with. That's another excellent point. It really is a no-lose proposition for Bill Belichick. Cam Newton may be great. Jared Stidham may step up. Either way, more numbers at the most important position on the field as they try to move forward without Tom Brady. And think about this, too. Being a veteran, you almost you put so much pressure on yourself. If I was a veteran defensive player, if I was McCourty or Stefan Gilmore saying, hey, guys, we got to really step it up. We got basically a rookie coming in and being a starting quarterback. So there's a certain level of concern that you concern yourself with the offense, even as a, as a defensive player. But with Cam, you're thinking, okay, I know what Cam can do. I know how physical he is. I know what he brings, the energy, the emotion, just everything. Like, I would be so excited. And I was talking to a friend yesterday, and they said they heard the McCourty brothers on their podcast. And as soon as they heard the news of Cam Newton, they just got really pumped up and really excited. Like, players in this league, they know who can make a difference. Even though Jared Stenham, you know, is their teammate, they're looking at him like, you haven't done anything. You haven't proven yourself. You know, like we're heading toward the end of our career. We can't afford to go eight and eight, nine and seven. With Cam Newton, we know we have a chance to get back to that AFC championship game and make and make a, um, make a run. Yeah, I can only imagine how excited the players are. It excites me for the season. And to yes. bring it back full circle, Rodney, I, I'm reminded there may not be a season. I hope there is. This is another reason to hope there is. We want to see Cam Newton on the field. We want to see what the Patriots do post-Tom Brady. And I can only hope that the people who are in charge of the sport have a good plan that not only covers all of the bases and minimizes the spread of the virus, but helps the players get to the point where they're comfortable, where they're confident, where they're not carrying around that baggage you were talking about earlier. It won't happen, Mike. The big concern I have now, Rodney, is whatever the league is doing behind the curtain, they're not sharing it with enough people so that we can get to the point where they don't know what to do, Mike. They don't know what to do, Mike. What can they do? Like all the social distancing ga- ga- guidelines you can do. But once you enter on that football field, they all go out the window. Like how I mean, am I like the only one that's seeing this? Like, how could you even think about having a football season? Yes, I want football. I want to talk every week and, you know, and watch these games and, and see what's going on. But at the end of the day, you can't be safe and have a football season. It's 
still sweating. It's still blood. It's still guys spitting on you, guys getting up off you, shoving their sweaty forearms in your throat, guys talking smack and spitting in your face directly. It's no way you're going to be able to have football without guys getting affected. That's just what it is. And here's what they're banking on, Rodney. They're banking on their belief that the virus primarily spreads indoors in confined spaces, bars and restaurants, et cetera. And when you're in an open air environment or even in a dome where the air system has the proper ventilation to recirculate the air and, and not enhance the risk, that they believe that when you get in that setting, it'll be okay. Well, that's one hell of a gamble. That's one hell of a roll of the dice. And we're gonna find out by the middle of September whether or not that roll of the dice works out. Mike, I don't have anything else to say about it because I I just don't think we're going to have football. We'll sit back and see what happens. But um, I think we're going to be sitting here in September looking at each other like, wow, they just canceled the first four games. Or I think it'd be crazy for them to even try to go out there and play right now. Well, here's hoping that they have a plan and that they can make it work and that they can make the players feel comfortable and safe. And Rodney, I I hope it happens just because I want to talk to you every week, even if we aren't sitting elbow to elbow. We'll be putting together the pregame show before every Sunday night game. So I, I want football. I want to work with you. I want to talk to you again soon. And maybe we'll do this as we get closer to the season. We have a better idea of how things are going. I appreciate your time, pal. And we'll talk to you again. No doubt, Mike. Thanks, man. It's always good to talk to you. See you later. All right. Thanks again to Rodney for some of his time. That was a great conversation. It's something I'd like to do more often. Rodney has great insight coming from the perspective of a guy who played in the league for years and a guy who has been heavily involved in covering the league for the last decade. And on that issue that we discussed about the pandemic, I keep looking for clues. I keep looking for anything that lets me feel like the optimism that I gain when talking to people at the highest levels of the sport is justified. And I really am not sure it is. I am concerned, especially after hearing Rodney, I'm concerned. I read today the, and I wrote about this, the message that was crafted by J.C. Treader, the new NFLPA president, anticipating the fight that is to come with the league, addressing and dismantling some of the misconceptions out there about what it means to play in the NFL, what it means to protect yourself in a pandemic, what it means to be concerned about your own health because a lot of these guys have a body mass index north of 30, which puts them at risk. A lot of these guys may have undiagnosed conditions like asthma or diabetes. You got guys that have sleep apnea. That's a risk factor. You have guys who live with family members who may have pre-existing conditions. You have guys who live with older parents who necessarily are at risk. So the NFL and the NFLPA eventually are going to have to reach some agreements. And we're less than a month away from the start of training camp. They're going to have to agree to how camp is going to operate. They're going to have to agree to how the season is going to operate. They're going to have to agree to the process for a conscientious decision to not participate. What happens if a guy opts out? I presume he gets none of his salary. Maybe they'll create a system where a guy gets partial pay if he opts out. Maybe there'll be some sort of an effort by other players and by fans and media to raise money for the guys who decide that for them, it's not worth the risk. But what are the procedures there? What are the procedures as it relates to coaches? Now, coaches aren't represented by any union. They're on their own to the extent that they have counsel that could maybe 
assist them and participate in the process. But that collective power that comes from a union, that only applies to the players and the officials. We haven't heard much about what's going on with the NFL and the union that represents all of the officials. But think about this. A lot of these officials are middle-aged or older. They're out there among the gladiators. And already they're at risk of being trampled. But now, what do you do? Can you officiate a game and stay six feet away from any of the players? Do you try to do that? It, it, it unlocks another area of questions. And as I've said many times, for every question that we answer, five more questions pop up. And it just snowballs and it mushrooms. And my hope continues to be that the NFL took full advantage of the head start that it acquired based upon the circumstances that emerged when the virus first became a problem in March. A lot of time left, a lot of an opportunity to figure out what we're going to do. But right around the draft, I said, man, I hope they have a plan here because May becomes June, June becomes July, July becomes football. It goes quickly. And here we are, four weeks or so away from the day when training camps are going to open. I was alarmed yesterday to hear that there are teams thinking about not bringing their rookies in early because it's going to be all they can do to get the facility ready for when the players show up for training camp. I've previously heard some teams may not bring 90 guys to camp. It may be 75 or 80. Maybe it'll be fewer than that. Maybe you have some guys on the roster that you just say, you hang back for now. We'll let you keep participating in meetings from home. We'll let you work out at home, but we're not going to bring you into this crucible until we need you. And also, we just don't want that many guys in one place at the same time. That's entirely possible. So I just hope that they have a clear plan in place for ensuring that they can minimize the extent to which players are exposed to the virus in the facility, in the locker room, and also then do the best they can to make sure no one who is positive gets onto a practice field or onto a game field. And I feel like so much of what the NFL is pinning its hope on comes from the belief that the virus is more readily transmitted in a confined space, not in an open space. And listen to the way Rodney explained it. And he's right. Breathing, spitting, bleeding. What can you do? Are they going to take that eye shield and extend it down to the bottom of the face mask? Will that even make a difference? You can't have a space helmet on when you play football. A fully contained helmet. You've seen the prototype with the Bears logo. It looks kind of cool, but at the same time, how practical is it? Is that what we have to do to make this season work? You know, I thought that by the time we got to August or September, and I thought that based upon conversations I have with people in the know, that the testing would be at a point where it's very easy, it's very quick, and it's very efficient to know who's got it and who doesn't. And that you could basically set up an airlock to the facility where before you get in, you take a test, you know within five, 10, 15 minutes, whether you're positive or negative. If you're negative, you go to work. If you're positive, you get quarantined. The reality that there may be guys who are positive among the other players, undetected, potentially spreading it to them before we find out. That's my concern. And I've yet to hear anything that makes me think they've got that addressed and that they're going to 
handle that. And if I'm a player, if I'm a coach right now, less than a month away from training camp, I'm, I'm worried. I'm concerned. I'm wondering what are they going to do and how comfortable am I going to be, especially if I'm coming from an area of the country right now where the virus isn't running rampant and I'm showing up in a place where it is. If I have to go to Arizona, which is moving toward a potential shutdown, at a minimum, bars, restaurants, theaters, et cetera, shut down through the end of July, right about the time the Cardinals are due to begin training camp at their team's stadium. I'd be, I'd be worried. And that's why if I'm a player, I want to know what's going on. What's going on? What are the rules? What will they be? How will I know that I'm going to be safe? How will I know that my family is going to be safe? How much time will I have to make a decision on whether or not I want to opt out of the season? Do I have to opt out before I even show up for training camp? Or can I come to camp and just see how it feels? Am I comfortable? Some guys won't care. See, Chris Sims is of the mindset that most players won't care. Rodney Harrison's comments today suggested a lot of players will care. There will be a group of guys, young guys, guys without family members who live with them, guys who aren't married and have kids, guys who don't have pre-existing conditions, guys who are younger than 25 where their brain hasn't fully formed to the point where they fully appreciate the risks, whether it's driving your car, riding a motorcycle or anything else, not until you, you reach 25 are you in a position to properly understand the connection between behavior and risk. Those folks are going to want to play. And it very well could be that you see a lot of the older guys that don't need the money tap out. And what happens? Their jobs get backfilled with young, cheap players who gladly will show up to play football. Look at some of these other sports that are going on. They, guys aren't tapping out, right? UFC, they're not tapping out. Premier League, they're not tapping out. Now, at least in England, they've got the virus under better control than we do here. But these are all legitimate concerns, and it will be fascinating to see how it plays out. And it may be ultimately impossible to pull off an NFL season, especially because the virus keeps spreading. And the virus keeps spreading because there are people who just don't care. They won't wear a mask. They won't take the situation seriously. They insist on going to bars and nightclubs and restaurants. And they insist on urging others to do the same. And here we are. Did we think in March and April that this is where we'd be? in late June, early July, weren't we led to believe by some that in the warm months, this would just kind of go away? It would just disappear. Weren't we told that by someone? We're in a worse spot than we were in March and April. So I, I and, and it, just, it never ceases to amaze me. By raising these questions, I am not rooting against football. I am desperately rooting for football. I want it to happen. And I just hope that behind that curtain, there is a real plan. And that the NFL's plan is something other than, let's see how it goes. Let's just do this and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. This isn't the kind of situation where you want to be changing the tire on a moving car. Because that car is going to careen out of control quickly if you don't have a great plan from the get-go. And it very well could be that we don't have a season or we have a dramatically shortened season or they delay it until spring. How about that? January to April football. And then 
what do you do? Do you play again in September of the next year? I don't want to be pessimistic. We all need reasons to be hopeful. There have been dark periods over the past few months where hope is anything uh, other than what's going on. That we accept the fact that this nightmare continues, this Twilight Zone episode remains unabated until we have a vaccine. I'm still gonna try to be hopeful. And part of that hope is, I hope that the people who have a strong financial interest in making this work have a plan other than, we'll make it up as we go. Because ultimately the virus is in control. And until we accept that and submit to that and work within that premise that the virus is in control, until we do that, we got no chance to have football. We got no chance to get out of this. We got no chance to slow the spread of the virus before it kills whoever it's going to kill, sickens whoever it's going to sicken, while people continue to engage in stupid and selfish behaviors like not wearing a mask. So on that note, wear a mask when you go out in public, stay home when you can, wash your hands, be smart. Even if you're not doing it because you care about your own health, if you're not doing it because you care about anyone else's health, if you care about football this year, now's the time to do it. Now's the time to make the sacrifice in the interest of having football. And even then, it may be too late. We're going to find out soon. In less than a month, there either will or won't be training camp. And if there isn't, that's going to be the biggest alarm that we could imagine as we move toward the supposed start of the season on September 10th. That's it for Tuesday's PFTPM. We'll do it again tomorrow. Thanks, as always, for your support of the website. Stories all day long, all night long, around the clock, all day, every day at ProFootballTalk.com. We'll talk to you again soon.